Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 81, we think. (laughs) My name is Scott Gardner, and with me, as always, is my buddy, Michael Bailey. You know, I I think we can use the the term Tales of the Justice Society of America in the loosest (laughs) way possible for this particular episode. Because, you know, folks... uh, in listening to older episodes of the show, it's amazing how, well, one, how often Scott and I will just change our minds about stuff. Uh, we will <laughs> we will be we will hold firm and fast on something. Like you listen to those first like 15 episodes, we ain't talking about no JLA JSA crossovers. <laughs> we ain't doing that stuff. Well, maybe we should talk about the so we've been doing that, and overall, I think uh, I think we got spoiled uh, because when we really started covering it, I mean, we had a lot of fun with like the the Shazam one. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking about the 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 one with the Legion, but man, we didn't like that one at all. Um, and then we got into like the really good ones that Perez was drawing, and mm-hmm. like the awesome basically ended up being like three episodes where we were talking about crisis on earth prime and after that i think it's uh it's fair to say that things took a left turn into piss wonky <laughs> and uh last time we had to talk about if i'm correct the uh the true origin of black canary aka superman hates his teammates and johnny thunder is a douchebag <laughs> so now we're at Justice League of America numbers 231 and 232. And, uh, wow, they, uh, <laughs> this concept ended on a whimper and not a bang, didn't it? Ooh, yes. <laughs> so that is what we are going to be talking about this week, um, to prove just how <laughs> we can't be bothered, as this woman named Ebony I used to work with used to say all the time, which. God, I did not like that woman. Uh, we, couldn't really be, <laughs> we really even couldn't be um, bothered to write a, uh, a proper synopsis. So what we did is uh, Scott and I both have copies of the official Justice League of America Index that the independent comics group put out in the mid-80s. Uh, so... Oh. Scott, I believe, is taking the second issue, so I'm yep. gonna just ju- we're just going to jump right in on this one, folks. Uh, no, no, no putzing around, no really long extended preamble. <laughs> this is Justice League of America number 231. It has an October 1984 cover date, 
This particular issue has cover a cover by Chuck Patton and Dick Giordano. Don't let that fool you into thinking of what the interior art is going to look like. The story title is Family Crisis. It is 23 pages. And uh, we can honestly say that because we, we, we have this really cool... Okay, maybe we will take a little side trip right here at the beginning. If you have never seen any of the official indexes that were released for both DC and Marvel in the mid-80s, I really suggest heading out to eBay right now and checking these out because... I, I don't know about Scott, but I think these things are gorgeous. And they were put together in such a... Man, it, the writers on this thing is like a who's who of, of fandom at the time. Uh, the review, One of the reviewers is Mark Wade. Uh, Mike Teifenbacher is also listed in, in those credits. He's, he's a big muckety-muck, if I'm recognizing that name. Uh, Murray R. Ward is the writer and editor of this, and he was one of those people that was really big in in, in fandom and writing for fanzines and stuff. And you've got a uh, you've got consultants including Jerry Bale. So the pedigree on this thing is amazing, and the the credits that they give are highly detailed because not only do you have the credits, which is editors Alan Golden, Roy Thomas, who is apparently a consulting editor. Plotter, scripter, Kurt Busiek. Penciler, Alan Kupperberg. Inker, Rick Buckler, Rich Buckler. Excuse, I always say Rick, and I feel bad about that. Letterer, Ben Oda. Colorist, Dean, Gian, Dean Giandolo. But also gives the feature characters, the guest stars, the villains, guest appearances, other characters, and cameo appearances. And it tells you where those characters were last seen. Man, there there was a time where I would just devour this sort of thing. Like, just, I don't know, I, I can't even describe how important finding that crisis index was when I was a kid. Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, because not only did it tell you everything that happened in Crisis on Infinite Earths, it gave you, like, the history of the multiple Earths a listing of all of them. It was just amazing. But getting back to this one, uh, this was released, by the way, on July 5th, 1984. Had a cover price of only 75 cents. Three quarters. I guess that would be six bits. Yeah, that would be six bits. Uh, While the nine Justice League members who fought in the Earth-Mars War transport to Earth, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Supergirl... Meet the Flash and the satellite just in time to encounter three people who immediately transport the quartet to Earth 2. On that world, Dr. Fate, Starman, Green Lantern, and Dr. Midnight are battling winged monkeys somehow connected to the trio who have brought the Justice League there. The combined forces fight off the monkeys, which disappear, finally allowing the civilians time to explain why this is happening. When Dr. Joshua Champion, a research scientist, disappeared from his lab one day and nobody could tell his daughter Victoria or his son Ian where he was, they contacted their Aunt Meredith to stay with them. They were, also, they were about to give up hope when Champion's image appeared to them, boasting of the tremendous power he now had. 
before he disappeared. He showed signs that he was fighting the feelings he had just shown, and they suddenly knew that they could get help from someone simply by willing themselves to be transported to those they sought. Thus, they enlisted the Justice League. Somehow tuned into their father's presence, the children lead teams of superheroes to potential meeting points. Victoria, Meredith, Superman, Flash, Dr. Midnight, and Starman head into an alien dimension and a planet with a constantly changing surface, while Ian, Supergirl, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Dr. Fate battle winged mythological creatures at the Pentagon. The team in the alien world finds a domed city with a workforce creating a deafening din. To escape, they enter an empty building which houses the Brain Center of the Force inhabiting Joshua Champion. Immediately, they are blinded by a beam which sends them into revelry. Their fondest desires come true, except for Dr. Midnight, who blocks out the beam and seems to free them because he's a big party pooper. They find the unconscious champion, and with Dr. Fate and Starman taking care of the city's teeming hordes, the champions transport everyone back to Earth with everyone except Dr. Midnight, now under the control of the brain which controls Joshua Champion. To be continued. Uh, where do you want to start with this one, Scott? <laughs> hmm. Um, hmm. I mean, I I honestly have precious few notes on this, but uh, actually, is you know something I just now thought of. I failed to look and see. Is this in either of the All Star Companions? Uh, it is in Volume Three. Volume three. My volume three is in the other room. If you have yours, Andy, it, it, there there are no notes. Oh, there's no notes. All right, there's well. no notes. There is a interview uh, with Kurt Busiek. Ah, that, that and and the whole section with the JLA JSA crossovers and and volume three is basically reprinted from an issue of Alter Ego, where they went through. Uh, I see. And uh, I remember I bought that issue actually off the rack. Uh, because I just thought it was, it was just so cool. <laughs> I, I was just fascinated <laughs> reading that. But um, there are no notes that, the, and the interview basically talks about the fact that, you know, the writer of this was Kurt Busiek, who is, who, I would say he was still kind of one of the heavy hitters in the industry right now. He's not. Really, oh yeah. He's not really working for the big two in except for like Astro City, but you know his his run on Avengers is still. Uh, well thought of, right? And Marvels is still considered to be one of the best books of the '90s. So this was some of his earliest work, right? And apparently, you know, Len Wein, uh, when he was talking to Kurt about doing this back in '84, uh, Len Wein told him, you know, man, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with this crew. You know, basically, where you're doing a JLA JSA crossover, where you don't really have the JLA and you don't really have the JSA, you know, he's like, I would have walked away from that. And Kurt's, Kurt's, Kurt's reaction was, yeah, but you're not as hungry as I am, uh, you know, and getting work and stuff. So on one hand, it's kind of interesting to see such, you know, the early work of, of somebody whose later work I, I rather enjoyed. On the right. other hand, this story really doesn't thrill me in any sense of the imagination. So, I, I think that's the biggest problem with it. Yeah, the the story is 
Yeah, the story is not any good, or not very good, I should say. Not, I don't want to say not any good, but not very good. Um, but there were moments in the in some of the art that I like, especially in the first issue. The the art goes seriously crazy in the second issue, which we'll get to. Um, but there were moments here. But um, I'll just run kind of through my notes real quick. Uh, I, I don't want to steal your thunder on the on the cover, but because I know you and I were talking very briefly before we got started about uh, you know different <laughs> impressions we had of this issue. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave you to talk about what we were talking about before about the cover. But I'll just say that I like the cover on this a lot, but I had never read this story before. And unfortunately, really? it gave me a false impression, you know, a false hope of what the story was going to be like based, you know, purely on the cover, you know, judging a book by its cover. What's funny is that. Even now, after having read this story, I still have the same impression of the cover on this one that I've always had, is the guy that's inked white, that's screaming, uh, champion, still to me, he reminds me of that, what's that dude's name, something Moses from, uh, from the Avengers, you know, he was one of the bad guys. It's like Moses, Moses Maximum. Magnum? Magnum, that's it, yeah. Oh, my God. He does. Because he, he, he doesn't, he looks, he doesn't look like a uh, like a white guy to me on this cover, just the way he's drawn. He looks like he has a big old fro. Yeah, it, it's kind of you know, like Isaac from The Love Boat. Uh, yeah. It became a disembodied form. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you almost want somebody to, re, to, to, to redraw the hands on the cover to be like pointing the two fingers at you. Right. <laughs> But I, I do like the cover, and I was so excited that Supergirl was going to be in this. Oh, and, yeah. And, I mean, that had never happened before. And not that I mind, but I'm still left at the end of the story going, why? Why was Supergirl here? It, it, it never really made any sense, because she just shows up on page three. She comes out of the uh, teleport, and she says, hey, Superman, what's up? And he just says... Uh, because Wonder Woman's wondering the same thing. Yeah, what's going on? We got your summon, says. And he says, it's the Flash. He, uh, he asked me to get some of us together. He said it was uh, nothing important, but consider uh, the pressures he's been under lately. And then all of a sudden the Flash shows up. So they all sit, just sit down and start talking. And I'm thinking, now, I'm aware of, like, the Supergirl, Flash, Adam team up in Superman family way back when, but... Other than that, I mean, are, are is like the Flash and Supergirl buds? Are they, you know, they, they, they keep in touch? They're chummy? You know, they're Facebook friends? What the hell's going on here? Why was she invited to this? She's not in the Justice League. So I was a little bit confused. Again, not that I mind. I just would have liked a little bit better explanation of why did you all of a sudden pull in a non-JLA or to this thing? Because I don't get it. The real world answer is this issue took place in a really interesting time for the Justice League of America. Right, yeah, this is just prior to the Detroit Legion or League, right? Exactly. They, they had just finished this huge storyline which brought Martian Manhunter back in the book, and basically right. it was this invasion of, of the Martians. And I'm trying to figure out the exact episode number but the fire and water podcast actually covered that storyline uh on one of their uh 
I don't want to call it early episodes, but you know they, they've been around for a couple of years now. So I think it was within the first year, year and a half of them uh, being on, uh, you know, you know, existing. They they got together and, and discussed this, uh, and I do want to thank them, uh, by the way, for playing our trailer in the latest episode. As as we're recording this, it was weeks ago. By the time you actually hear this, but um, they. Uh, they, uh, Rob Kelly was nice enough to play the trailer for the show, which I have to do a new trailer for this show so that it uh, sounds a lot better and doesn't have like 16 hours of music <laughs> at the end of it, uh, which uh, I'm, I, I'm a little embarrassed about because I'm the one that put that thing together. So Which, which one is this you're talking about? The one with uh, the All-Star Squadron beginning and then it just plays the theme to, um, what is that? Sky Captain? Sky Captain World of Tomorrow for like a minute and a half. Oh, okay. It was episode 14 of the Fire and Water podcast, which covered JLA uh, 228 and 230. It was Shag and Rob Kelly and uh, comics blogger Diablo Frank, who has a Martian Manhunter blog, uh, of all things. And the man knows more about Martian Manhunter than I think any human being really should. (laughs) So you had that going on, and there were people... One of the story points in that was that certain members of the Justice League were just not responding to their summons. Uh, And it kind of complicated the battle a little bit. So you had these characters that were just taken off the table. And you also had to explain where they had gone. So, you know, Green Lantern was... Was this right around the time that he was just off in space? No, no, this was after that. This was after he had gotten back with... uh... Yeah, he was on Earth because this next... Well, the next issue is a pre-crisis Monitor appearance. And just prior to that, the the Monitor had been in Green Lantern. Remember, we had covered that. Yeah. So Green Lantern had just gotten back from all that cosmic stuff. And was back working at Ferris Aircraft and all that. this was right around the time he quit. But see, what's maybe, weird is maybe that... Maybe this was when he was sent into space by the Guardians and they were attacking Ferris Aircraft. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. a bunch of rocks. You're right, because, yeah, yeah, I'm looking at the picture. Yeah, okay. this is where he was saving that planet. You're right. Oh, that's a nice bit of syncing things up then. Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of one of the more positive things I, I can say about this story is that it really did play heavily into the continuity of what was going on at the time. Yeah, because that opening, uh, see, I really like that at the very beginning, you know, you get past the uh, the opening splash, which isn't too bad. I kind of like that. But the uh, the second page is, you know, a classic six-panel grid, and you've got Green Lantern saving that planet. You've got, I don't know why the hell they were telling, the, you know, they're telling us where the Phantom Stranger, like, okay. But I will say this much, though. What, the one thing that really won me over on these indexes is not only, as you say, did they tell you the last time you had seen a character or the last place they appeared. I always like that they tell you what the next appearance is. Mm -hmm. And I was noticing here that, according to this, the next appearance of the Phantom Stranger after this story is Swamp Thing Annual Number 2, which is a favorite of Chris Honeywell and I. I really regret that we we never did go back and, and pick up our Swamp Thing coverage of when we were doing Saga the Swamp Thing because that's a story that I know both he and I were looking forward to uh, kind of rediscovering again. Because if you've never read Saga the Swamp Thing Annual Number 2, 
you're cheating yourself out of a great story because that oh man that's some really good stuff because uh spoiler that's what reveals uh how sargon the sorcerer got killed and i always kind of like that story but it's basically all the magic uh Magical heroes all get together and go with Swamp Thing, and they invade Hell, which is a pretty cool story to get Abby back. And one of them yells, "This is Sparta," and it just goes, <laughs> down, just goes downhill from there. Well, you know, I had a note. I, I'm actually very happy. I'm very pleased with myself because I had a note here, page two, panel three. I just put Ray Palmer with a question mark, and then of course I'm looking here at the index and under guest appearances, it does say Ray Palmer. So. This was when he was off doing his sort of the Adam thing. But, I mean, just looking at that art, that could be anybody, but I just was looking at it and thinking, is this specifically referencing Ray Palmer when he was... Because that was all in, like, South America or something, right? Yes. Yeah. For not having ever read any of that, I was kind of surprised that I I nailed it. I, I did figure out who it was supposed to be in the art. Um, Let's see, what else have I got? One thing I really did like, as as inconsistent as the art can be in both of these issues, one thing I noticed is that um, both Kryptonians, both Superman and Supergirl, are almost always in the air throughout both of these issues. They're either flying or floating throughout the entire story. That I kind of liked. I, I thought that was kind of interesting how they're they're seldom seen flat-footed on the ground, which I just thought was, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. And not in an arrogant way. Right. It's not like they're floating above people because they're, you know, it's not like in the Black Adam sense. Right. Where where they're trying to just show their superiority. It's just, it's Alan Kupperberg, who I, I, I'm going to not really harp on too much because I don't want to come off like I'm trying to insult the man because he can draw a lot better than I can. Right. So I'm, I'm not going to sit there and... Uh, and, and and dog his art too much, but I am not a fan of his artwork, uh, especially when you you have the covers done by one artist who we both liked a lot, and you know we we've talked about this on various shows of of, of kind of that disappointment when you get like this really awesome Neil Adams or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Superman cover. Mm-hmm. And you crack the book open, and it's not like he's bad. It's just you didn't want to see Kurt Swan, right? You wanted to see Garcia Lopez, so, right? Uh, I kind of had that problem, um, but when I get to my notes, I'll talk about why this why this storyline so important to me in a very very odd way. <laughs> <laughs> Page six. If you took all the dialogue out of here or, like, redid the dialogue, this could be, like, the most filthy, disgusting page ever in a comic book. I'm just going to leave that there. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, sick minds think alike. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see. I've got page seven. I just put Dr. Midnight. Dis. But I don't remember what the hell that was all about. What is... Oh, here it goes. Dr. Midnight uses his technological weapons to create darkness, which he alone can see in. A paltry power in this company. Inconsequential. As it turns out, though, I think that's actually redeemed later, because isn't that kind of the point of the story, is that the bad guy vastly underestimates Dr. Midnight? So that kind of stole some of the thunder of my joke here, but I actually got a kick out of that. I was like, poor Dr. Midnight, he just can't catch a break. 
Uh, let's see. Page 18, jumping way ahead here. Page yeah. 18. Next to last pen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, granted, he's pretty busy, but Superman, he's got the Flash in one hand. He's got two people in the other hand, but he's also got to rescue Starman and Dr. Midnight. So how is he rescuing them? He literally has their capes in each of his hands. He's like, and you can even see Dr. Midnight going like, I can't breathe Superman. Seriously, dude, I can't, I can't breathe. It's just hysterical. When I realized he was actually dragging them away by their capes. I was like, Oh, has he not seen the Incredibles? That's just wrong. Um, that is really, honestly, I hate to say it. I mean, I could go through and, and point out great moments in the art. I could go through and I could nitpick the art. But ultimately, it comes down to this. The art vacillates wildly in this issue. I mean, it is constantly like one panel is, ooh, and then the next panel is like, what the oh. hell? And then the next panel is like, hey. And then the next panel is like, ooh, that's not right. So it's... I mean, seriously wonky with the art and throughout the entire thing. Um, Superman generally looks pretty darn good throughout the issue. His is I'll agree with that. He gets a little chunky a couple of times. Supergirl looks pretty darn good throughout the thing. Wonder Woman, I was just noticing first panel page seventeen. I'm like, damn. But beyond that. You know what this really reminded me of? One of my one of my favorite artists that I'm actually really surprised is one of my favorite artists is Tom Mandrake. Because Tom Mandrake has a very he, it's just a very different style. It's kind of loosey goosey. It's it, to, it, me, to me it's all like I always kind of thought of Tom Mandrake as almost like a uh like a more horror version of like say Gene Colan somehow because Gene Colan also had a very loose and fluid style. This art in this, especially in the next issue, to me reminds me of like like a like somebody trying to imitate Tom Mandrake and just not really being able to pull it off. That's it, really the, that's the best way I can describe this particular kind of art style. It's like loose Tom Mandrake that's just not coming off very well. Ah, uh, Mandrake. You know the thing about him is that he drew that Shazam: A New Beginning. Right. Really, the the first time I remember. Uh, seeing his artwork and associating the name with the uh with with what's on the page. Right. And I absolutely love that mini series. Yeah, I, I, I do too. I think it's it's fantastic. You know, there are things as always if we're sitting if we're going to if we ever cover it like in a podcast, of course we'll have critical things to say. Uh but overall to me it's just it was just my introduction in comic books to Captain Marvel. And then, you know, reading his Batman stuff, which was amazing as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I agree with you. He's got a very different art style, but I was I was predisposed to like it uh, pretty much whenever I see it. And I can kind of see what you're, um, what you're saying, that there's a little Mandrake in here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. Kupperberg, I, I wonder if, I guess he might be related to Paul Kupperberg. 
I want to say they're brothers, I think. I could be wrong on that, but I do believe that they're brothers. So, but, um, it's just, for me, uh, were you done with your notes? I am. On this one? Okay, moving into mine, uh, the cover is by Chuck Patton, and, you know, I love Chuck Patton. I, I have I have I have become a not a devotee, but I have started. Uh, I've you know I've seen the light. You know, the, there was a big tent revival for Chuck Patton artwork. I'm the one that went there and and, and found religion. Uh, really odd note is that when you open up the inside cover, they have an Atari ad for Mario Brothers, and I remember this commercial, so I remember the song. That they're playing, something's coming up the plumbing, poor Luigi's in a bind, killer turtles out to get him, giant crabs are right behind. <laughs> something's coming up the plumbing, poor Luigi's in a bind, giant turtles out to get him, creepy crabs are right behind, butterflies, deeper shines, they're all coming out the pipes. Mario, where are you? It's Atari Mario Brothers with Mario from Donkey Kong, his brother Luigi, and lots of crazy creatures. And it's twice the fun when two play at once, because you need all the help you can get. Mario, where are you? Mario Brothers, new from Atari. These are the things I remember from my childhood. Yep. I love that song. So, uh, And I will be sampling that and, of course, playing it uh, at some point. Because it's on YouTube. Because everything's on YouTube. Paul and Alan Kupperberg are brothers. I just looked it up real quick. It's really interesting how you open the first page and there's Batman (laughs) on the splash page. And he hasn't been a member of the Justice League for a while. Almost a year, I would say, at this point. Because he quit to go form the Outsiders. Uh, I don't yeah, know but, why. Ni- but neither has Caveman or Hitler Man or or I or the du- or the dude played baseball or the Blackhawks. Yeah, or sad else. looking, broken down, living in an alley. Nixon Man down here in the bottom. <laughs> I would not known that was Richard Nixon if it didn't say that in the index. By the way, because that does not look like Richard Nixon to me. He looks he looks like a like a private eye that's like just gotten evicted or something. He just yeah. The- the thing about this story that I love so much, and it's a really small thing, but it's just so awesome, is that, you know, you've seen Robin get dragged into these things. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the Earth 2 Robin was a member of the JSA, and the Earth 1 Robin, and he kind of met up and hung out in one of the one of the crossovers. And it's not that you never saw Supergirl interacting with the Justice League, but here she is basically on a mission with them. And in my favorite Supergirl costume, by the way, you know, you can make fun of the headband all you want. I'm going to ignore you and still continue to love it. No, I, so. I love this one. I know you and I disagree about the 70s one with the, with the little tiny S shield over the yeah. boob there, but I do. If I've ever given you the impression that I'm down on this one, that no, I, that is wrong. I actually like this one a lot. It's just, I like that one slightly better because, of course, that's my era of Supergirl. Yeah, but I and, do like this outfit. And, and I think and I think that has a lot to do with why I like this one, is it's the first Supergirl outfit I became acquainted with in the comics because of reading Crisis so early right, in, yeah. my, in, my, in my career as a comics reader. So, and the way Perez drew Supergirl oh, yeah. was just, I mean, 
it could never look bad. But I also like as a you know on another level is that they bring the Flash in. The Flash is no longer part of the Justice League because Wonder Woman sold him out. Uh, and they talk about that, how she voted against him staying in the Justice League because he's on trial for murder right now. And I like that, basically, on a really weird level, even though Supergirl and Flash have jack all to do with each other, he just needed to talk. He has nowhere else to go. Right. So he's going up to the, 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 the satellite to talk to his comrades, who will have some basic understanding, and they're just interrupted before they can really get into that conversation in an adventure that really doesn't thrill me at all uh what i love though is of course it's an earth one earth two adventure so somebody has to explain what earth one (laughs) and earth two is you have to have the two flashes and apparently at one point in page six when this uh this air force guy i think he's an air force guy is explaining it Uh, apparently he's also explaining the birds and the bees uh, or something because wow you're right if you take the dialogue out on this page it's just it was about this big uh, but um but we have the explanation and on one hand it's kind of silly on the other hand it's an organic way to bring it into the story right instead of stopping all the action and having like a narrate uh, you know like narration they actually just take the time to have one of the characters explain it, and I kind of dug that. Uh, you know, it's funny you said that he was an Air Force. I never really put that together. I thought he was supposed to be a beat cop, but then looking at it again, I think he's an airline pilot. I don't know. I can't quite figure out what the hell he's supposed to be here, but yeah. But, but yeah, it one... does. It's it, it, just the, like the, the, the hand gestures he's making in, in the fourth <laughs> panel, and then all of a sudden in the sixth panel, he's just like, all right, kid, you're coming with me. It's like, ugh. No, don't be doing that. <laughs> but when we actually get into the plot with the the champions, it's just I just lose all interest. I mean, right. you've got you've got the I want to be Rick uh, Rick Jones and Snapper <laughs> Car so bad I can taste. I mean, doesn't that dude look like 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 he's the brother of the guy from Amazing Man? I mean, seriously, yeah. Uh, and it's just. The the champions are not very interesting. Uh, I love how the Pentagon, the way the Kupperberg draws the Pentagon on page fourteen, it almost looks like he was trying to draw the Superman symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, just and because that doesn't look like the Pentagon at all. I mean, just <laughs> in the roughest approximation of it. Uh, the action, though, to be fair, this man knows how to lay out a page. You know, right. the storytelling, you know, the, the figure work is a little rough. The storytelling's really strong throughout both issues. So, like you said, you could sit there and be like, well, this is good, and this is bad. And this it's it's like that conversation between Homer Simpson and the guy with the monkey's paw. You know, it's just like, well, the figure work is good, and that's good. But the, I mean, the, the figure, the, the page layouts are, are, are amazing, and that's good, but the figure work sucks, and that's bad. You know, it's just... It's kind of so up and down, and it really, it really hurt my enjoyment of the story. And what, what I love most of all, though, about the art is on page nineteen, Alan Kupperberg had apparently just seen Superman three, because when all the the heroes and the champions, and uh, apparently the the champions are turning into elves on this page, I'm not quite sure what's going on there, <laughs> but on page nineteen, you know. Starman is dreaming of winning the Nobel, uh, you know, the Nobel Award. Flash is dreaming about, you know, actually, you know, being with apparently both his 
dead wife and his uh, very much alive, but probably never going to speak to him again, fiance. And then comedically, you got Doctor, you got Doctor Midnight, and there's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but Superman is walking in a park with Lois Lane, and he's wearing like a sweater, and it's tied around. It looks like Christopher Reeve, yeah. From, Superman 3 when he's hanging out with Lana. Yeah, you're right. It's actually kind of cool. I liked that. It's just like, you know, with the timing of everything. Uh, My last note for this issue, uh, outside of the fact that we get that very awesome DC Digests ad where Superman says, thanks heaps. Right. um, Which I I, I hate that saying. uh, And who the hell are Binky and his buddies? Uh, Next time you and I get a pizza delivered to our house, we have to ask them if if, if they used to live in Glendale, Arizona, because apparently the pizza guy rode into the JLA mailroom and got the letter <laughs> published. And, uh, and just, 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 just to confuse the hell out of them, actually, so which would be kind of cool. Um, now, if I'm correct, before we move on to the next one, looking at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, it seems like the annual was actually published the next month, and this was published the month after that. Which is really weird. Hmm. Because Justice League of America Annual Number Two, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, was published on uh, was released. Excuse, excuse me, on July nineteenth, nineteen eighty four. Justice League of America Number Two Thirty Two was released on August second, nineteen eighty four. So, that's kind of strange when you kind of think of how the storyline's supposed to go. Right. Well, I'm just looking at cover dated October 1984, and it has uh, JLA 231 and JLA Annual Number yeah. Two coming out at the same time. So yeah, it was right in the middle of this. That's very strange. That is very strange. Because yeah, they should have waited one more month. Because then the next issue after 232 is the first Detroit one, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, yeah. yeah 233. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but that's all I've got. Um, I'll hand it over to you for two thirty-two. We're gonna have a lot of great stuff to talk about when we do uh, the uh, elsewhere in the DC multiverse segment. But we won't do that for this until we get to uh, All Star Squadron thirty-eight, right? Mm-hmm. No, we, we'll uh, we'll save it for that. One. Yeah, be, uh, like, some good stuff though. I'm just I was absolutely. peeking at it. Because I wanted to make sure that the only reason I brought it up is I wanted to make sure have we done this month yet? Which we, we have not. But what's funny too is that there's a good number of what's in this month. We're going to end up doing um, some sort of coverage one way or the other because there's so many uh, uh, what you call it pre crisis monitor appearances. Yeah, there's a ton of them. All right, so this is the November 1984 cover dated issue. Cover credits on this again: Chuck Patton. And Dick Giordano. I kind of dig the cover on this one. You've got uh, Mm -hmm. all kinds of cool stuff going on. You have got... All right, now this one's not fair at all. You've got Starman and Green Lantern fighting each other, which is actually a pretty cool mashup. But then what the hell is Dr. Fate doing? Oh, he's just trying to get in the middle of it, like always. Yeah, he's just... he, he, He doesn't have a buddy, is the problem. See, everybody here is squared off except him. So you've got Starman shooting, and, and it looks like he's uh, pretty effectively blasting a hole through the shield that GL has whipped up. And then you've got Dr. Fate. He's not really taking sides. He's just shooting at the shields, which is really <laughs> weird. 
you've got uh, the Flash super speed attacking Supergirl, and it looks like he's doing a pretty good job of clobbering her. And then you've got Superman just knocking the freaking daylights out of Wonder Woman. I mean, that is just a – that's not right. <laughs> that is uh, – it almost reminds me of, like, when he threw the uh, the wife beater into the wall yeah. in, in action number one. It's the very same kind of pose, uh, although this time he's – He's gone back on uh, the whole. You're not fighting a woman now. He is most definitely fighting a woman. He is just no. He just read Superman versus Wonder Woman. And he's, just, uh, <laughs> he's just like you know my 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 Earth Two counterpart knocked the hell out of her. So yeah, I want to be just like him when I grow up. He just baffed the hell out of her right there. It's like ugh. All right, what do we got here? All right, the story in this one is called Family Crisis Part Two. Battlegrounds, yeah. Family crisis, really. <laughs> Let's see. Editors on this are Alan Gold and Roy Thomas was consulting editor. Plotter scripter, Kurt Busick. Uh, penciler and inker, Alan Kupperberg, which I guess explains why the art takes a steer, uh, serious step down this issue. No offense to Alan yes. Kupperberg, but it does. It takes a serious step down in this issue. Letterer is Ben Oda and colorist Gene D'Angelo. Uh, roll call for this issue. We have Superman, Flash, Wonder Woman, John Jones, Firestorm, guest stars, Supergirl. We have Dr. Fate, Starman, the Earth 2 GL, and Dr. Midnight representing the Justice Society of America. And according to this, they all next appear in America versus the Justice Society number one. So that must be fast approaching as well. Uh, I like that we also get uh, little appearances here. I, I think it basically comes down to just like a, a blink and you miss it type of thing. But we have uh, Johnny Quick, Power Ring, and Sur- uh, Superwoman, all of Earth 3, the you know, members of the crime syndicate, says here they all appear next in Crisis on Infinite Earths, number one. So we know that's right around the corner as well. Also guest appearances by Wildcat, Johnny Thunder. I like that Captain Marvel shows up, even though, again, it's just for one panel. He doesn't appear again until Crisis on Infinite Earths number six. So we won't see him for a while. And, of course, uh, another reason that one way or the other, folks, we were bound to determine we were going to cover this issue. Because even if it wasn't for the JLA-JSA team-up in these two issues, this particular issue also has a pre-crisis monitor appearance in it. So it would have, if it didn't fit here, it would have fit with the uh, crisis. What were we calling that? Crisis management, crisis counseling, whatever the hell the the thing is that we were doing. All right. So anyway, that's enough of that. Let's go ahead and get on to the synopsis. Wait a minute. What's it say in the comments here? Just say America Pure Next in just, okay, well, I just said that. The absence of Ultraman and Owlman from the interdimensional prison, uh, prison where they had been confined by the Justice League and Justice Society in issue 30 has yet to be explained in any published story. It is possible that this is, is simply an illusion caused by the combined powers of Owlman and Power Ring. Sometime before their next appearance, the crime syndicate members escape their prison and return to Earth-3 where they have been uh, battling the Earth-3 Luther for some time prior to the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Doesn't Luther in that issue say that he released them? Does he? I thought he did. 
Hmm. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. I I should remember that, and I honestly do not remember that. But then again, didn't we comment before that it was never explained how um, Ultraman got like because he, he got like in and out of the bubble like umpteen yeah. times and it was never really <laughs> adequately explained. I don't think it was ever even explained. Well, that bubble, as we have talked about, is the most depressing thing ever. Right. Anyways, it's it, seriously. It's it's basically the you know. There's nothing to do. There's no books. There's no television. There's no music. It's just four guys sitting, around, uh, four guys and a girl sitting around in a bubble, staring at each other into nothingness. Well, here's the thing. You know, you and I had said before we got started that since neither one of us were all that keen on either one of these issues, that we were okay to have Tangent City. Now is a good a time as any to bring this up. I was thinking about this not long ago um, about Limbo. And how, in a lot of ways, it seems to share a lot of uh, things in common with, say, the Phantom Zone. Now, I'm always a mark for the Phantom Zone. I love the Phantom Zone. I've always been a fan of Phantom Zone stories. But even from when I was a kid, the Phantom Zone, while it fascinates me, it also scares the hell out of me. Because ultimately, doesn't the Phantom Zone come down to cruel and unusual punishment? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I've always wondered about that. Was there not somebody somewhere that would that would think, you know, that just seems wrong to you know? Because there were people even on Krypton. I mean, well, here's the thing that got me thinking about it was that there were people on Krypton that were sentenced to eternity in the Phantom Zone, eternity, which was just like, wow, okay, that's harsh. But then what about the guys that were just sentenced to like 20 years, but then Krypton was destroyed? Now, comic books that I can recall anyway, like Silver Age, I mean, you know, pre-crisis, never dealt with the fact of like Superman the movie was really the first time where I can recall like Einstein's type, you know, science would come into the whole thing of the distance between, you know, because there's the whole thing where Jor-El's like, you know, by your reckoning, I, I'll have been dead thousands of years kind of thing. So that means that for thousands of years, the Phantom Zoners were in the Phantom Zone, in, in the movie continuity. But in the comics, I mean, you know, the, the 29 years that had passed between, you know, Superman arriving on Earth and now he's Superman was still 29 years to the Phantom Zoners. Yeah. So if if somebody was sentenced to 20 years in the Phantom Zone while Krypton still existed, now you fast forward in time, isn't it time to let these people out? Well, and Superman, Superman did that every once in a while. He, he did, but then didn't it pretty much invariably come down to, well, you're too dangerous to be let loose on Earth, so back in the Phantom Zone you go. And they just <laughs> left him there. And I'm like, that that's just seems wrong. I can't remember it. Not, again, I could be dead wrong because Lord knows I haven't read every Superman story that's out there. But I can't remember a story where they just set somebody free and that was that. It seemed like whenever they did set them free, that there was always some something happened where they wound up back in the zone at the end of the thing. Well, I, I think <laughs> the the somewhat humorous and somewhat sad response to that at the same time is basically they can't hack it in the in the real world. Right. So it's kind of like you know, you, you, there's probably 
a uh, you know like like a, a hotel somewhere where you know Quicksil is exposed himself to gold kryptonite hung himself and wrote Quicksil was here. <laughs> it's funny you, like, made, <laughs> you made the same joke I was gonna make about Sunset <laughs> <Sussex> Redemption. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I was gonna make the same joke. <laughs> but uh Quexel is the only one I can think of off the top of my head where he was set free from the zone, but then he did resume his his evil way. So if he hadn't been accidentally exposed to Gold K and lost his memory, then more than likely his well, ass would have wound up back in I the zone too. There wasn't the story that he wasn't evil really and he actually at the last minute exposed himself to gold kryptonite to save superman i think you're right yeah and then you know superman kind of felt bad about the entire situation and gave him a job at the daily planet essentially yeah pick up with the uh the very awesome phantom zone miniseries if i remember right he went and got the gold k and he was gonna expose superman to it and then something i can't remember why but he had a change of heart or something See, if I'd got off my ass and covered this for It's Superman, like I said I was going to, like, six years ago, then, you know, <laughs> I, I would remember this story maybe by now. But, but yeah, something it's something to that effect. He he dug up the gold K to expose Superman to it, and then, I don't know, he saw Superman rescue puppies or some damn thing, and it changed his mind, and he decided, no, I can't do this to Superman, and so he went and exposed himself to it, which... I don't know. Does that work? I mean, so once a you're once a Krypton, Kryptonian is exposed to gold K, gold K stops working. Is that right? Or either that, or Superman saw what was going on. I, and was just like you know, whoops, <laughs> whoa, there, city boy, something, yeah, you know, and and you're right. It's it's one of those things where when, once you start thinking about it for more than like three minutes. The Phantom Zone is one of those things. It's like, really, Jarrell? This was your, this was your big humanitarian alternative to either killing them or shooting them off into space, and reprogramming their minds. You Kryptonians are a bunch of bastards. You know that. You people like are sitting there trying to tell us how advanced you are, and all of your ways of punishing your citizens come down to either making them watch everything go on without being able to participate in it, which is torture in and of itself. Or we're going to launch you into space and reprogram your brain. See, I had always been curious to try to back backtrack the origins of the plot because I can't remember where this became a thing, but I know it did. Where there was a retcon, if you want to call it a retcon, but there was a, a thing that happened where Jorel's plan changed from. He was working on a spaceship to send the three of them, Jor-El, Lara, and, and the baby, to Earth so that they could escape the destruction of Krypton. And then somewhere along the line, that changed to Jor-El's plan was to project everybody into the Phantom Zone, and yeah. then he would come to Earth and free everybody from the zone. <laughs> And I kind of like that idea a lot. I, I think that's actually a very interesting idea because I find it incredibly ironic that while I am a huge fan of Superman as sole survivor of Krypton, at the same rate, I do like the idea of, okay, Superman's the sole survivor except for the Phantom Zoners. 
So these people that you sentenced to this quote unquote humanitarian, you know, instead of just executing them because they, you know, they, they did away with their death penalty, you sentenced them to this, you know, quote unquote humanitarian Thanks, hell. Obama. They're the only ones that end up surviving through just, you know, dumb luck and happenstance. Everybody else dies, but the phantom zoners survive the destruction, you know, through the nature of the thing that they were sentenced to. I just think that's kind of cool. I, I've always been a big fan of the Phantom Zone. I think it's, it's a, it was a really neat concept, although, again, it, the concept also scares the bejesus out of me, too. Well, it's, it's a lot of, you know, you know, a lot of the Silver and Bronze Age Superman is like that. When you really think about it, I mean, when you really start examining the stories and, and the implications of everything that happens, it's, it, it just becomes this... It, it, it becomes this thing where you're like, man, I really wish I'm just going to go back to reading the stories and not as much thought into them as I'm doing right now, because I'm going down a rabbit hole that's leading me to some places where I don't trust anybody ever again. You know, it's it's, right. Maybe it's not that bad, but it's just like, you know, you and I have had the discussion and I know you especially, uh, are in favor of a world where Superman is the only superhero. Because once you put Superman in a Justice League context, why isn't he just taking care of everything? So then the writer has to come up with a reason why Superman doesn't take care of everything. Mm-hmm. And you kind of just have to... I don't want to say turn your brain off, because, you know, I, I, one, I think that's insulting to both the writer and the reader. You know, you never want to have to say, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's not like you're watching a Michael Bay film where you really do kind of have to turn your brain off. But when you're reading a story uh, like this, I, you know, or or like anything with the Justice League, you just want to go in, it's like, okay, Superman's part of it. It's like watching the Super Friends. Superman's part of the team. And he's got his place, and Batman's got his place, and Wonder Woman has her place, and you just go for it. But when you start going, you know, Superman can really do anything at this point. Why isn't he just taking care of the problem? It's just right. like that great moment in that Secret Society two-parter of the second season of the Justice League animated series where Superman just loses it on his teammates. He's just like, you realize how much I have to hold back mm-hmm. and not do stuff? And it's just like, yes, that is a great way to talk about that. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just in terms of frustrating. But when you really think about it, Sometimes, as much as I love the idea, and, 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 and I will always prefer a Superman as part of a larger DC universe than Superman by himself, Superman by himself solves a lot of those problems. You don't have to worry, you know, you don't have to think in your head, well, how does it work with Superman teaming up with Green Arrow? <laughs> that, that doesn't seem very fair to Green Arrow, is all I'm saying. So. Right. So it's just, the Phantom Zone is just another one of those things. And this limbo thing, to bring it back to what we were talking about, uh, you know, this limbo idea is just, they they threw it in there because they needed a place to stick these characters. Right. So again, real world explanation is, okay, we're just going to put them in the limbo because we can't put them anywhere else. We're not going to deal with them all that often. Who cares? But then you get people like us that are like, how the hell does that work? Well, my thing with limbo, the thing that makes me think that it's, it's gotta be some sort of cousin to the phantom zone is that much like the phantom zone, they don't seem to need to 
breathe or eat or take a piss or anything like that. So it, it, it has to be something where your, your biological processes, you know, because we don't see them going to into a phantom state, which is how the phantom zone works. They literally become phantoms. So it, it's almost like it's just their soul that, that exists while they're in there. Limbo doesn't seem to be that way. They still seem to be corporeal, you know, beings. They seem to, you know, still have bodies and everything. So it must be that it, it, it like arrests their biological functions or something. I don't. It's just weird. I don't. I don't understand it. It's like they seem to still, you know, they can, they can obviously think and talk and move around and, uh, you know, they're they're conscious and everything. But at the same rate. I mean, it would be absolutely cruel to take somebody and dump them off in limbo if they needed sustenance, which they obviously don't because they sat in that bubble for 20 years. So, yeah, that is limbo is actually a bigger how the hell does that work for me than the Phantom Zone ever was. The Phantom Zone's fairly straightforward, I thought, to a degree. Yeah. But Limbo, I've never quite figured out exactly how Limbo... Limbo almost strikes me as almost like a purgatory. Mm-hmm. Not, not to get, you know, metatextual or whatever, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I was pushing Philosophical. it with the, with, with the jokingly saying, thanks, Obama. So I think... Should, uh... <laughs> All right, anyway, synopsis for this masterpiece. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta... You said that with a straight face, sir. Congratulations. <laughs> I think the technical term is humdinger. All right, so Doctor that that, that that right there that that's a humdinger. <laughs> humdinger. <laughs> Doctor Fate buries the Eldritch energy of the remains of the Commander's armies under the Pentagon by a mystic spell, while the Monitor and Lila. Observe the commander, who senses them watching. When Superman, Starman, and Flash arrive on Earth 2 with Dr. Midnight and Joshua Champion, they immediately attack Supergirl, Dr. Fate, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern. Dr. Midnight explains why, and the unaffected heroes can see their teammates struggling mentally with the dominating forces, even as they fight them. The commander re-inhabits Champion's body while the JSA and JSA passively resist their friends until Wonder Woman encircles them with her lasso and commands them to stop. Ian, Victoria, and Meredith Champion join together to try to force the enemy from Joshua's body. And with the help of the wills of the heroes as well, he is freed only to combine with the buried Eldritch energies and become even more powerful. Oh, this sucks. The commander then reveals his past and his intentions. He has uh, had been the ruler of his entire universe and now wields the psychic energy of every creature in that dimension. He had run out of challenges until Champion had appeared and revealed the presence of parallel universes to him. Damn, this story sounds familiar to me. I mean, like, really familiar. Like, I've read it in a much better story somewhere else along the line in comic books. Uh, He has vowed to conquer this one and then move on to others. Their battle seems futile until Champion determines that sending him back to his home dimension would defeat him, 
and using the teleportation powers of the family and Dr. Fate's magic, a door to it is opened. The heroes are not able to force the enemy through until the monitor unintentionally distracts him. I felt like that was the most important part of the whole issue, to be honest with you. The resulting force from the commander's exile sends the heroes careening through parallel universes. They finally stop where the crime syndicate had been imprisoned years before. While the heroes return to their own Earths, the champions leave on a dimension-hopping vacation to rekindle their family spirit. Superman, Wonder Woman, and The Flash have no idea of the changes to the Justice League during their absences from Earth-1. Actually, so I guess that would explain maybe why the annual comes between the two stories. Maybe the annual is happening concurrently, I guess. Maybe, sort of, possibly. I don't know. But that is pretty much it on uh, JLA 232. What do you got for notes on this one? Uh, First and most important note for me uh, personally is that this was one of the first books that I traded with somebody. Um, I think I've told this story on other shows and probably this one as well. And you're going to giggle at the name because everyone does. Uh, there was a dude that lived in my neighborhood named Wang Chung. <laughs> uh, see, everyone giggles at it, and I feel so bad for him. But he was... Uh, this is his last name tonight? <laughs> that would be perfect, but no. But he uh, he lived in my neighborhood, so when I started... He was, a, he was like a year ahead of me, or a year or two ahead of me. And when I started going to junior high, of course, we all shared a bus stop. And... Somehow we got to talking about comics one day, and he's just like, come on over after school, I'll show you some comics. And so he did, and we, you know, he had a pretty healthy collection, I was just starting out, and we traded books. And it was the first, and and one of the few times that I've ever done that. And this was one of the books that he traded, that I, I forgot what I, I gave him for it, but he gave this one to me, and it's the same copy that I have back then, this thing is whipped to shit. Uh, the, the spine's all cracked, it's rolled up a little bit, the covers, you know, it just looks like, uh, you know, like a kid who really didn't know how to take care of comics read it over and over and over again. And because of that, uh, before this I had read Crisis 5, because he had traded that for me too, and I, and I had that. This was basically my introduction to Earth 2 as a concept. Oh, wow. So, while reading the story today is a little disappointing, back then it was like this revelation, you know? It was like this huge deal, and you had all these great characters, and I remember seeing Starman on this cover and thinking, wow, that's a really neat costume design. And, you know, okay, I know who Supergirl is, and I know who Superman is, and Wonder Woman, and I've got the Doctor Fate action figure... But who's the dude in the red shirt? Oh, that's Green Lantern. That's interesting. Oh, so there's this whole other Earth where there's another Green Lantern that's different from my superpowers figure. So, on that, this this book will always hold a place, in, you know, like a very special place in my heart. As a story, not so much. <laughs> um, you get into the issue itself, and you're right, the artwork just... It's just not very good. Um... Oddly enough, the only character that really looks good is Ian. 
And I'm kind of curious as to why that is. But uh, maybe he was actually drawing from somebody he knew. Uh, and, and he is very, the typical, what people would think of as like an 80s tough. Right. Quote, unquote. Uh, you're right that really for us, outside of it having members of the JSA, members of the JLA teaming up, the most important thing about this issue is that it's a pre-crisis monitor appearance. And in looking at that pre-crisis monitor appearance, it's really apparent that the monitor started out as something and ended up being something completely different. Right. Especially Lyda, Harbinger, who would become Harbinger, is, you know, we've talked about this before, she is just so, she is more of a gun maul in these early appearances than his daughter, basically. Right. So it, it, it's kind of cool to see that, and it kind of balances out the fact that the commander is not only a pretty lousy design. I mean, looks he looks like a Cree, in all honesty, with uh, w- without you know without you know five uh, four fingers and a thumb, uh, but he kind of has that Cree armor look to him. Yeah, yeah, like Ronan the Accuser type mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, he does something like that, and that's fine. It's just. And, yes, he presented a pretty plausible threat for the Justice League, and, you know, it was a big battle, and the JLA and the JSA were forced to team up, and we get, like, you know, some really cool shots into the multiverse, and, 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 I, and I remember being kind of fascinated by who were these crime syndicate people when I was a kid, but then you get to the end, and it's just like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> it's just over. You don't even have, like, the silly... Um, Star Trek, like you don't even get that kind of ending. It's no, just, it just kind of it's like we're gonna go. It's like when when the champions disappear, I hear Holiday Road, you know, from National Lampoon's Vacation playing in the background, <laughs> you know, a little bit. But you know, it's just like to me, outside of the monitor appearance, the most interesting things are the ads. And there's this beautiful two page spread in the middle of the book. Uh, showcasing like a bunch of DC books, like you have the Star Trek, the origin of Savick, uh, the first issue of Legion of Superheroes, an issue of Atari Force. Uh, We recognize that cover of the All-Star Squadron as the one where Captain Marvel and Superman are fighting. You've got a Mega Man. You've got that... I always loved the cover to Batman and the Outsiders Annual number one. Mm-hmm. It's just a very dynamic cover, and you got the Justice League and the Superman and all that. So, you know, that is actually my bigger takeaway than the actual story. <laughs> and in all honesty, that's all I have on this issue. Wow. <laughs> okay. I... There's just, I you know, if... I decided when I was reading it that if I really started like going, well, I don't like this and I don't like this, then I'm going to be here for about 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. I, and that's, I completely agree with you. That's not the kind of party I want to throw. I'd rather talk about like, ooh, the the official Justice League of America index is more interesting to talk about than the actual story <laughs> we're ostensibly covering. Um, I I have precious few notes on this. Although I'll I'll add one just because, you know, as you were going over your notes, I was flipping back and forth through the issue. Opening splash page, Supergirl is going, ooh, ooh, Mr. Carter, Mr. Carter, ooh. Mr. Carter, Mr. Carter, ooh, ooh. Either that or she dislocated her shoulder and she's trying to put it back into place, one of the two. Green Lantern's like, seriously, his ribs are poking out and everything's like, get that dude a sandwich. 
But yeah, the R is wow. What the hell happened here? I mean, it is losing the inker. Well, I mean, if the notes in the index are to be believed, it was Rich Buckler on the inks. Now, the issue does you know the prior issue does not credit him no. as the inker. But something definitely changed between these two issues because the R in this one is not only is it incredibly inconsistent, it's it's predominantly bad, I have to say. I'm sorry to be harsh, but it's just true. Especially the the father champion looks friggin' ridiculous through this. He he looks like a cross between Santa Claus and High Father but done in a very, like, kitty comics, cartoony-type style. He just looks silly mm-hmm. in so many of the panels. Page 11 is horrible. Page 11 looks like it is really, it, like it is out of uh, some kitty comic, like an old issue of Super Friends or something. It's really, the art is not good in this issue. <laughs> some spidey superstar. Yeah, exactly. Story. Some Something bizarre is going on. Now, I'm going to... Um, keep an eye on this for the future to see if, if something else ends up taking the spot. But for the moment, I'm going to call this as I see it. I think this is the most important pre-crisis monitor appearance up to this point because the monitor unwittingly plays a hand in defeating this bad guy. Mm-hmm. Because if it wasn't for the monitor distracting the commander, I don't think the heroes could have defeated him. But they've they've got him right at the threshold, but they can't force him through. And it's when the monitor tunes in on the commander, and the commander senses he's there, it distracts him enough that the heroes can can defeat him and throw him into the vortex and everything, and that's how they beat him in the story. So, although the heroes aren't really aware of what just happened, I mean, the monitor helped tip the scales in their favor. I, I like that. I think that's pretty cool. That actually elevated the story quite a bit for me because I'm a I'm a monitor fan, so I thought that was pretty neat. But I agree with you that um, the monitor, and especially, uh, is it Lila or Lija? Because I think I've seen it both ways, and I can never remember which which is correct. Because the index called her Lila. Is it Lila? Or yeah, it's Lila. Lila. Okay, but I think I have seen it as Lija too. But anyway, I, my impression has always been that. Basically, Wolfman threw the character out there like, okay, here's this guy, and this is what he does. And then he just left it up to the individual issue writers to basically do their thing with him, right? Is that is that more or less how it went? Yeah. Because I don't think there was any Pretty like much. character Bible for him or anything like that until he was actually revealed. Um. Honestly, that's pretty much it. The only other note I've got on this is on the... Uh, Across from the inside back cover, you have a great uh, Star Trek ad for the Star Trek comic that DC was putting out at the time. And Mm -hmm. there's a promo poster for this that I was actually lucky enough to track down a couple of years ago. And uh, while I am no fan of Sutton and Villagran as the artists on that book, this actually isn't a bad piece of art. I always liked how they uh, how they did the Enterprise, at least the the characters were like, and they could they could wax and wane but the ships typically looked really good and the enterprise does look good in this ad but yes it does that's about it i really liked seeing captain marvel even though it was just the just the one one panel just a quick little cameo but he looks good he's huge and beefy 
But yeah, I I agree with you. This this story really did nothing for me. All other than the fact that it did kind of give me um it kind of gave me the warm fuzzies in that in in the sense that it felt a lot like some of those less than stellar issues of All-Star Comics that we were doing when we, you know, when the show first started because there were several stories where we were like Eh, you know, the art was okay, but the story was really kind of, eh, and then the villain was just stupid. And it's kind of, that's exactly what this felt like. So in a weird sort of way, it was almost like coming home again, you know, because it was that's kind of where we started from with with lackluster stories and, and stupid villains. So, I mean, I didn't hate it. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where, one, just in general, I'm not, I'm not down with, taking a story and just tearing it apart for my own personal amusement. Right. It's not, you know, maybe, maybe it's cause I'm getting older. Uh, God, we're just keep on getting older. Don't we? Which is better than the alternative, I guess. <laughs> but you know, it, it's just not, I think you and I would rather spend our time talking about how awesome these books are. Right. Uh, or talking about like, you know, we were talking, you know, we were kind of talking about the phantom zone before and having fun with it, but really just going, yeah, that's kind of weird, but never in that was that man, this sucks. Let's tear it down. And that's why I was a little uncomfortable when I was reading these issues. Cause I'm like, man, we got to talk about this. And yeah, you know, at least with like the, the last one, we could, we could, you know, fall back on our standard of making fun of Johnny thunder uh, <laughs> as a way to kind of get through the episode. Right. And to ask, like, well, how does that work? Which is my favorite question to ask sometimes. But, you know, I've, I've joked several times in the episode. It's 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 almost like, well, let's, let's talk about those indexes that ICD, ICG put out. Because those were kind of cool. And I, I recently completed my collection of the DC ones. Uh, which, after, I can honestly say, 27 years of trying, I finally got them all. So that was uh, that was kind of cool. Uh, so run run I, down real quick um, if you're able to. I mean, what what was there? Because I know there was there was JLA and Teen Titans and Legion. Um, Legion and Doom Patrol. What else is there? Okay, there's Hawkman. Oh, okay. There's one issue of All Star Comics Index. See, I thought there was an All Star one, but is it? Does it go into the stuff that we covered? No, it was all, all it started with all star number three. The golden age stuff. Okay. Um you had a millennium crossover, uh where where it covered like the, the main books and all the crossovers. You have Crisis and the Crisis crossover. Uh they had planned to do a Legends, but that never worked out. Uh the Justice League one actually went eight issues. And I think that about covers everything. Let me look at my stack here just to make sure I didn't forget anything. Some of these, uh, some of these are worth having simply for the covers. Perez did the first couple covers to the Justice League one, and then Joe Staten took over. And there's also a really nice Jerry Ordway one in the Justice League. I have it in my reference section. <laughs> They're sitting on top of my who's who, by the way, because I'm a dork. Um, See, other than other than the Crisis. Um, Index and the Crisis Crossover Index. I don't think I have any of the other ones as actual paper issues, but as CBRs, I have Doom Patrol, uh, JLA, and the Legion. 
But they also did some for uh, for Marvel as well, because I know they did the Amazing Spider-Man, and what else did they do? They did, like, Marvel Team-Up, I think. I think the Avengers as well, and the X-Men. Oh, did they? Mm-hmm. But yes, we got All-Star Comics, Crisis, Crisis Index, which has a less than stellar Tom Mandrake. That is isn't Tom Mandrake, yeah. Jan Dersima, you have two Doom Patrols with covers by John Byrne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hawkman, they have a two-issue Hawkman and Luke Giaconetti, when I posted these on Facebook, uh, expressed uh, a desire to get those. Eight issues of Justice League, which I didn't even know there was a seven and eight until I happened upon them in that in the, that one-day show I go to. Legion and uh, Teen Titans, and that that's it. Hmm. I, I really wish, and I don't know what the rights issues with these things would be like who you know like dc obviously owns the characters but who owns the actual like indexing you know right because that because that's a separate issue altogether but i would love for them to release an omnibus of this stuff i don't see why they couldn't i mean they reprinted the the two crisis ones when they did the omnibus wasn't that the 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 absolute or the absolute edition, yeah exactly yeah that's like the reason to get that absolute edition is that companion book that came with it i mean the the crisis itself the 12 issues looks fantastic and the giant oversized printing and the recoloring and everything looks really cool uh almost as cool as the 98 hardcover that they released that i finally got my hands on mm-hmm. Of those, but really the main reason that I was so glad that my wife got that for me for Christmas was that companion where you had all the, the everything we're going to be using as reference material when we're covering Christ. Right. So I'm looking no, forward to that because to this day I've still never opened that. It's still in the original shrink wrap. I've never opened it. Just waiting for when we get to the to the coverage. Yeah. If you're anything like me, the night you open that companion, just clear your deck. Yep. Don't don't plan anything. Don't say ah, I'm gonna I'm gonna play some video games or I'm gonna watch a movie. Because once you start reading that, you're gonna go all the way to the end. Of mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. Just because, just because when you're going through all the memos and the back history and all that and seeing how the story evolved, it's just like it's not like a oh my god, these people are awful. It's more like this is how it all happened, and that's why I think I like it so much because. While there are some problems that creep up, just simply because of you know your you know it's it's a massive crossover that completely changed the DC universe. Not everybody is going to be completely on board with that, right? And that's understandable. That's that's like you know you you go into your job tomorrow and they suddenly have changed your job title, right? And what you do, you know, you don't hate anybody for it. You're just not happy about it. So that's what I kind of got the sense of, and, and and poor Roy Thomas, and everything he went through is chronicled in there. So and and some of the ideas that Roy had, probably a better idea that they didn't happen. Really? So, yeah. Hmm. In all honesty. So uh, we got anything else for this one? Oh uh, yes, yes we do. Real quick, let me pull it up here. 
We have one piece of feedback, but I thought it was pretty awesome feedback. I don't know if you had seen this yet, so I can go ahead and uh, cover this one real quick. Go ahead. This is from our buddy Sean, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. I'm going to pronounce it Corey. I hope that's right. Sean, if I butchered your name, write in and let me know. If I pronounce it right, uh, write in and let me know. But Sean writes here, he says, uh, the subject header is Ice Master Hostess Ad and Other Appearances. Hey, Scott and Mike, and this was originally sent to me as a message on Facebook, and I asked Sean specifically, I like this so much, would you please send it in so that we could read it on the show, because I thought this was pretty awesome. So Sean is one of many people that I know right now that is actually listening back through the whole back catalog of Tales of the uh, JSA, getting kind of caught up to where we're currently at with, uh, with the comeback from the hiatus. Now, what's funny is that Mike and I are also listening through the back episodes. I'm like number 52 or something right now. So Uh, anyway, Sean writes, he says, just listen to episode 14 of your Tales of the Justice Society podcast. He says, yeah, I'm a bit behind. That's okay. That's all right. You'll get there. He says, you may have figured this out already in the app. He says, you and Michael were trying to figure out if any of the hostess villains had actu- uh, had appeared in, an, in any actual comic stories. I know of one. There is one starring the Human Torch where he fights against the Ice Master. Ice Master has appeared in a few issues of the Thunderbolts, Gambit, Herc, I think, and I believe he was in an issue of Avengers vs. X-Men, or one of the titles related to that crossover. But his first appearance was, in fact, that hostess ad. That's pretty friggin' cool. Says, I did a bit more research and have compiled a complete, I think, list of Ice Master's appearances. Oh, and his civilian name is Bradley Croon. Uh, And he's got here Avengers Volume 1, 191. Um, It says, amongst other other Marvel comics that month, that's where the hostess ad appears, is in that issue. And then uh, Thunderbolts Volume uh, Volume One numbers twenty four and twenty five, part of the Crimson Cowl's Masters of Evil, Gambit Volume Five number seventeen, Fear Itself Homefront number two, where he fights Speedball, Herc Volume Three, or excuse me, Volume One number three, a Fear Itself uh, tie-in, Avengers Academy number twenty. Thunderbolts Volume 1, number 158, X-Men Legacy, number 275. And again, that's part of the A versus X event. So, so as you can see, one of the hostess guys has made quite a name for himself. I've enclosed a picture from the Fear Itself Homefront issue that shows that Marvel didn't even bother to retcon him with a, a new grim and gritty background. They kept the hostess ad intact. That's awesome. Is, uh, he says, I've also sent along the hostess ad itself. Keep up the good work on the podcast. Like I said, I'm a bit behind uh, as I just started listening recently, but I love what you guys are doing so far. And I love the hostess ads. Many plays you do. He's going to be so disappointed when they stop. Uh, I think I laugh just as hard as you guys do while acting them out, especially Iceberg Head. Iceberg Head. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Next time I'm uh, I'm on the blogs, uh, I will definitely be adding a link to the show uh, on both of them. So just take it easy and keep up the good work. And again, that's from Sean Corey, and he's got a couple of links here. Captain Carrot's Burrow. Uh, yeah. Oh, these are his blogs. Okay, so you've got uh, 
uh, Captain Carrots Burrow, all run together, one word, uh, .blogspot.com, and Marvel vs. DC Crossover Craziness, you, you can find at Marvel vs. DC Crossover, all one word, .blogspot.com. I'm going to have to go check those out. I don't know that I've seen either one of Sean, those. but Sean's a good guy. Sean, he... Uh... I know him as part of the the kind of community over at Fire and Water, ah. and that that's kind of how. And you know, we we all have like the uh, the superhero, you know, the the Justice League of bloggers. We jokingly call ourselves. <laughs> so you know, he's part of that group group too. So it's it's he's a good guy. I interact with him on Facebook a lot. I'm glad he wrote in. And oh my god, the amount of research he did with just this one character shows why he's blogging. In my opinion, the, 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 nothing else will 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 quite tell you about you know that that you are really good to go as a blogger when you can track down all the appearances of somebody that was in a uh, hostess ad, you know, years and years and years ago. This is pretty cool. Are, are you looking at the email by any chance? Yes. I think we should act this sucker out. That's what I think. Well, let me get back in. <laughs> What's funny is he, he, he does give us the, the ad, uh, you know, the original ad, and then he's got this page here. Where did he say this was from? Um, oh, from the Fear Itself Homefront issue. This was Fear Itself Homefront number two. And it does. It shows somebody's laying on the ground. I guess maybe this is Speedball. I'm not sure. And, and it's got some villains flying away and then... Ice Master is, uh, he's doing the Iceman thing where he's forming an ice bridge and he's like skating away and he's saying, hey, wait for me. And the other guy, I don't know who the other guy is. The other guy's saying, maybe if you hadn't eaten all the fruit pies we boosted from the gas station. I was like, that's freaking awesome. Total callback. That is really cool. So for the first time in a long time, Scott and Mike are doing a hostess ad, the Human Torch. You want to be the Human Torch? I'll do the Human Torch. Okay. Uh, the Human Torch versus the Ice Master. The city is in the middle of a deep freeze. The Ice Master is living up to his threat to put us in a new ice age. Even you're not hot enough to melt my heart of ice, flame face. <laughs> and we see him. He's, he's grabbing onto the Human Torch, and it looks like he's trying to freeze him, and uh, Human Torch is thinking to himself, he's right. His power is not just ice, it's life-stealing cold. Leaving me cold, hotshot? Getting something that will warm you from the inside out, Ice Master. Hostess fruit pies? All for me? Apple and cherry. What crust? So light, so tender, and I'm I'm warming up to the real fruit filling. <laughs> Things are warming up again now that the Ice Master is warmed up to the goodness of hostess fruit pies. And you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. <laughs> you know, the art's not half bad in that. I don't know who it is, but uh, I like how the torch looks, looks in like that. It's like Gil Kane. Is it? I don't think it is, but I said it looks it, like Gil it, it could be. I don't know. I'll have to do some research and see if I can find out. I know there, there used to be sites out there where you can look up these sorts of things. Well, we need to cut it short, but uh, before we go, I just want to throw the idea out to you, Mike. As I said, you know, we, we've both been listening through old episodes. I know we had kicked around the idea before of doing like a like a hostess theater type of thing. Maybe maybe this is testing the water. Maybe we should think about bringing that back. Hell, even if it's just doing 
Marvel ones that we hadn't done before. I'm, I'm telling well, you, dude, I, I, people loved the Hostess ads. Uh, well, let, let's leave it up to the listeners. If you wanna, if you want us to do it, you got to write in, and I don't want to say write in and beg us because that sounds egotistical. But if the if the demand is is there, I think we could get together in an afternoon and knock them all out. <laughs> nah, I'm just you're being too nice. Beg, bitches, beg. <laughs> You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday. Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally, Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there is no minimum donation be a show sponsor today you can also support this show and the two true freaks network as a whole when you shop on amazon Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 